So we are starting a new series here this morning called Gospel Conversations. We finished the book of Ephesians. It took us uh, about eight, nine months to go through the book, and we finished it. Now we are going to do a a topical series before we go to our our next book. I'm not sure what book we're going to go through next, but right now we're going to take a a summer journey, about seven weeks, through, uh, through portions of the Gospel of John. And we're going to talk about gospel conversations. That's the heart of this series. That's the heart of, of, of what we want to talk about is that, that throughout the gospel of John, there are, no, there are a n- number of conversations that Jesus had with people that he shows us and, and, and presents to us the, the, the nature and the character of the gospel and what is the gospel and how it impacts people in their life. And so this is what we're going to be looking at over seven weeks. Within, the, within uh, one of the weeks, we're, we're, we're going to see a Pharisee who thinks that he's right with the Lord because of his allegiance to the law of Moses. And, and in John chapter 3, Jesus tells the Pharisee, you must be born again. He's confused about that. What does it mean to be born again? He's, he's all confused about being born again. That's one of the weeks. That's next week. We're going to look at that. And then there's going to be another week where you go to, we go to John chapter 4. And we're going to look at a conversation that Jesus has with a woman at a well. And this woman is not just a woman. She is a Samaritan woman. And we're going to see a conversation between a man a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman that would not normally take place, but we're going to see what the gospel is all about to a woman who is worn out, who is tired, who has gone through, who has gone through husband after husband after husband and is now living in, a, in, in an adulterous relationship. And, and the Lord comes with compassion. He had a divine appointment with her. We're going to look at that conversation. And then, and then we're going we're, we're gonna to look at several other conversations throughout this series that, uh, that have the same type of feel for them. And we're going to learn lessons about the power of the gospel and how it impacts our life. And so, so have you ever had a conversation with somebody, and I'm going to say it like this, a conversation with somebody where they did all the talking? Like today, some people might call this a talk. That's kind of the phrase nowadays for preachers. They call their sermons talks. Well, I want you to know this is not a talk. You're not talking. I'm talking. This is what you would call a monologue. This is not a dialogue. Have you ever been with somebody, though, where it's like a a monologue? It's not a dialogue. And by the time you're done, you're just exhausted. It's like, oh, my goodness. You know, uh, you don't like being in those conversations. And you you pray that you're not the person, right? Start, start, you start thinking, well, is that really me? Do people feel that way when I'm talking to them? And, and I've, 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 I've been around people like that, that you with them having a conversation, and you realize real quickly, Lord, I don't want to do that to people. I want to listen. I want to have a conversation. You know what's interesting about this gospel conversation? As we're going to talk about the gospel, when we're talking about the conversation between God and humanity, who did the talking first? God did the talking First, he opened his mouth first and he communicated first. He made the first movement in this gospel conversation. Now, do we have to respond in a conversation in the gospel? We do. We have to make a response. We have to talk back. But God makes the first movement. He makes the first movement. And so in this first message in this series, Gospel Conversations, We're not going to talk, we're not going to look at a conversation between Jesus and another person or Jesus and a group of people as we'll see in some other 
parts of this, of this series. We're going to look at a conversation that Jesus started. And that's in John chapter 1. Jesus begins a conversation. And when you get to the end of the Old Testament, you get to the book of Malachi. God had sent prophets throughout the Old Testament to, to, to say, thus saith the Lord. Here is the word of the Lord. God is saying this and God is telling you this. And, and there was a prophetic voice in the earth through his prophets in the Old Testament. Then you get to the book of Malachi and you get to the end of the prophet Malachi's prophecy to the nation of Israel and things go dark. And you have what theologians call the 400 years of silence where there is no prophetic voice. There's no one that God, God had not, God did not send anyone into the darkness to declare the light of the truth of God for 400 years. This period is the silent years, but we know that God is still moving. God was still moving during those 425 years. God was still at work in and amongst his people and in and amongst the nations of the world. And, and we really see that history. We see that history unfold in our Old Testament in the book of Daniel. You see that history during the silent years unfold through the prophecies of the book of Daniel. But there is no prophetic voice. There's no voice for the Lord declaring, thus saith the Lord, until we get to Matthew. Until we get to the beginning of Christ coming to the earth. Until we get to the incarnation. I just want to read Isaiah 9. The prophet Isaiah speaks to the breaking of the silence. Isaiah 9, 2-7. It says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep deep darkness, on them has light shone. He's prophesying about Christ that is to come. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, for you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the, tr- of the tramping warrior in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 6, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. He's pointing forward. He's pointing forward past the 425 years of no prophetic voice. The silence is broken. A child is born. A son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it from, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the beginning. This is in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah spoke forward to the breaking of the silence where God was going to come again on the scene and say, thus saith the Lord. But he was going to say, thus saith the Lord, different than he had in the past. He was going to come down. He was going to manifest himself in the flesh through the Son of Jesus, through, through, through the Son of God, through Christ, and, and start the conversation. This is The incarnation, God becoming man. And I think so many times we limit this idea to Christmas. And we think, unto us a child is born, a child is given, a son has been given. And we we, we think about Christmas. We think about Christmas trees. We think about the celebration of the incarnation only once a year. But I want you to know that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the doctrine of the faith that is the most foundational. Because without the incarnation, there is no life of Christ. Without the incarnation, there is no cross 
for him to die on. Without the incarnation, there is no resurrection for him to prove that he's God and to provide a way for salvation. The incarnation is the beginning of God communicating to humanity in its darkness that I am here. I've come. The incarnation. And what we see, the beginning of this conversation, what we're going to look at is John 1. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 18. And we're going to talk about the incarnation. This is the beginning of the gospel conversation between God and man. Between God and man. God speaks first. And you see in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, say it with me, was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you fast forward to verse 14, right here, John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness, this is speaking of Christ, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And this is the title of this first message, Grace Upon Grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so this is the picture of the incarnation. In the beginning was the word. Christ was at creation. Christ was at creation. And and Christ, as eternal God, he came down and he subjected himself to this earth, to humanity. He became like us. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh. God says, I'm talking first. I'm coming first down to start a conversation with humanity that is lost, uh, humanity that is broken, humanity that is looking for hope and truth. I have come to be not only truth, but to be grace and truth. And so this is what we want to look at. We want to answer the question in this first conversation, this first gospel conversation that God has started. We want to look at the incarnation. We want to see the details of the incarnation. But before we do that, we need, to, we need to ask this question, why did God become a man? Why did God, eternal God, subject himself to becoming human? Why did he do that? What was the purpose? Why did he come? And so we need to lay a foundation before we talk about the details from John 1. Why did he come? And the first thing is this that we want to look at this morning is that humanity needed an intervention. Humanity needed an intervention. This is why God had to come. Humanity was in trouble. Humanity needed an intervention. Have you ever known somebody that needed an an intervention? Sometimes you think your kids need an intervention. From time to time, I think my children need an intervention. And I I think that if I'm not careful, I will intervene too strongly with them, right? Sometimes, sometimes you are in relationship with people, your family, your friends, maybe you have a coworker, and they just, they need an, an, an intervention because they believe that everything is okay, right? Isn't that not what happens when somebody needs an intervention? They get to the place where they think everything is okay. It is like with my children. Sometimes I'm talking to them and they think everything is okay. The way they're talking to me, the way they're responding. But it is not okay. They need an intervention. And even on a more serious side, in our lives, there can be people that are addicted to drugs or alcohol. They can be addicted and, 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 and to, to, to many other substances or, or things. 
or, 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 or they're, they're, they're in situations in their life where they're blinded to the truth and they need an intervention. Why? Because they think everything is okay. And this, was, this is the picture of humanity apart from Christ. Humanity thinks that everything is okay. There is a self-deception that is, that is inborn in us as humans. We're deceived. We, we're not just deceived. We are self-deceived. We think we're okay. Have you ever been deceived by somebody? There's a difference between being deceived and being self-deceived. It's kind of like, like the person who, who, who hits the story of a person who, who hits a car, a parked car in a parking lot, rams into the car, and he's standing at the car writing a note. And there's people that were witnesses that are watching. And he's writing, he's writing a note, and it said something like this. The note says, I have just smashed into your car. The people who saw the accident are watching me. They think I'm writing down my name and address. I'm not. Good luck. That's deception. Right? Right? He's doing something that someone else thinks he's doing, but he's not. He's doing something else. He's deceiving. That's deception. Self-deceived is different. You can't see reality. You can't see the truth. And that is the spiritual condition of all those who don't know Christ. You, you cannot see the reality that's right in front of your eyes that God is real. That God is alive. That God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And you can't see the reality right in front of you that you are in desperate need of forgiveness and redemption. If we're not careful, we can believe that we have no sin. That we need no help. That we're okay without God. That we don't need God. But as humans, our primary problem is, is, is that we are self-deceived apart from Christ. We must have a revelation of Christ to open our eyes for us to see the, our spiritual condition correctly. We must see it correctly. God must help us to see it. You know, I think sometimes humans dwell, humanity dwells in the reality of behavior. It's all about behavior. And so they think, well, I don't do a lot of bad stuff. And I do some good stuff, so I'm really not that bad. But this has nothing to do. Our condition before the Lord is not about behavior modification. Do you understand that? Your relationship with the Lord has nothing to do with your behavior. You didn't get saved because you behaved right. You got saved because you recognized your true spiritual, spiritual condition. And you said, God, I know that I don't behave right. I know that I am not spiritually right with you. And then, and then by faith, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and he changed you from the inside and then your behavior changes. So we don't dwell in the realm when it comes to being self-deceived and people don't know Christ. It's not this issue of behavior. Look, people who are naturally sinful as we all are apart from Christ, they're gonna sin. It's a symptom of a sickness. Sin is a symptom of a sickness. When we're sick, we have symptoms. When you, when you have the flu, you have fever. When you have the flu, sometimes you might throw up. When you have the flu, you have other symptoms. It's because internally you are sick. That's the same picture. Humanity is self-deceived. Psalm 51.5 says this. Behold, the psalmist David said, Behold, I was brought forth. I was born in iniquity. I was born in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. This is natural. This is this inherited tendency, this inherited tendency of sin that we inherited from our spiritual forefathers, Adam. So not only do we have a tendency to sin, but, but intrinsically we are sinners 
because we have been, we have inherited a sinful nature, a sinful propensity to sin. It is an internal problem. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The core of who we are apart from Christ is desperately sick. This heart condition, this position leaves us in a desperate place as concerning our relationship with God. This is the intervention. This is why humanity needed an, needed an intervention. This is why God started the conversation. He said, I'm going to begin this conversation with humanity and break through the darkness and, 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 and bring the light of the truth of the gospel to them because they are in darkness. They are blinded to the reality of who I am. And, and because of my great love, I am coming. But apart from Christ, Romans 3 says this, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, whether you're a Jew or a Greek or Gentile, whoever you are, we are all under sin. For as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. And here's why. Here's why. All those those symptoms right there, what's the reason why? Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no acknowledgement of who God is, who Christ is. This is why people live the way that they live. We should never be shocked at the world and the culture and the things that they do to disobey God's word. It should never shock us. It, that's normal, right? It, what, what, what it should do is it should cause us to have compassion over their brokenness. Humanity apart from Christ is not only spiritually dead, but they are subjected to the brokenness that results from sin and shame. It's so grieving. You look at the shooting just happened in Virginia Beach, the 12 people that were killed. That is a result of sin and shame. It's a result of sin. This is what happens when humanity is subjected to sin. And when we see that our heart should be broken as God's heart is broken over the results of sin in our society. We live in a society that, that, that is overcome and overwhelmed by the curse of sin and shame. Think of the brokenness. Think of the people that you know in your life that don't know Christ. And they're self-deceived. They can't see correctly. Think of the pain it may be in their marriage. Maybe in the relationship with their children. Maybe you know somebody right now, they are seeking after substances or relationships to fill the emptiness in their heart, and you see their brokenness. Do you see that? Are you around people enough to see the brokenness and the shame and the guilt and the pain that people experience because they have not come to see the glorious light of the gospel shine in their heart? Our world is under brokenness and we should grieve over that brokenness maybe you're here today and you're sitting in that brokenness right now maybe you feel that brokenness right now I want to tell you there's hope for you today you can be free from shame from guilt from the curse of your sin you can be free from the brokenness that controls your life today because God intervened he came became one of us so that we can be free from brokenness and sin So what's the solution to the brokenness? 
What's the solution to the shame and the brokenness produced because of sin? How, how do we find an answer? Where is the answer? So humanity needed an intervention. That's the first groundwork point that we have to lay here as concerning the incarnation. Why did Christ have to come? Because humanity needed an intervention. But, but humanity tries to answer the question of brokenness and sin, brokenness and shame. They try to answer the question of brokenness in their life, but they do it the wrong way. And this leads us to our second point. Man-made religion offers one basic solution to the problem of brokenness. Our world is broken. Nobody would deny that. Our world is broken. But man-made religion says, really, there's really only one basic option to this, to how to fix our brokenness. And, and, and when I say man-made religion, that's everything other than Christ. Every system of belief other than Christ is man-made religion. And it may, it may not even be a religious system. It may just be somebody who says, I'm not religious at all, so this is my belief. I believe in nothing. Well, that's a man-made religious system. And so what is the answer that the world gives apart from Christ to fixing the brokenness that is caused by sin. This is what they say. They say, hey, this is a ladder climbing effort. It's a ladder climbing effort. You just have to try to be good enough. You have to try to climb the ladder. You have to try to climb the ladder. Man-made religion in an attempt is an attempt to climb your way up to God, to make yourself better, to improve yourself. The, the idea is that you have to become a better version of who you are. And it, we're going to look next week what did, what's Jesus going to tell Nicodemus? He says, this is not about becoming a better version of who you are. This is about who you are becoming brand new. This is about an exchange of the old for the new. This is the core of the gospel. This is the foundation of the gospel conversation that God has started with humanity. Is that this is not a ladder climbing religion. This is not trying to be a better version of who we are. You know, there are forms of, 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 of Christianity, and I say that loosely, that, that preach that right there. Just, just, just believe better about yourself. That, that, that's how you get better. That's how you achieve in this life. Just believe better. Just believe better. It's, it's a self-esteem gospel. You just have to believe better about yourself. The gospel is not a self-esteem gospel. The gospel is a message that confronts the reality of who we are. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we've offended a holy God. It's not about, listen, listen. it's not, you guys got to listen to me. Listen, tune in right here. It is not about propping up something that's broken. You hear me? That's not Christianity. It's not about putting makeup on a dead person. That's, that's false religion. It's putting makeup on a dead person. Because we're spiritually dead. Man-made religion says we're going to prop up. We're going to fix up. We're going to put makeup on something that is broken at its core. Christianity says that's not the answer. The answer is, is that what is broken and ultimately, what is dead has to be brought back to life. Amen? We try to cover our shame. We try to hide from the guilt. We prop ourselves up. We put on a happy face. We try to speak positive. We spend countless hours and resources trying to fix an internal problem through external means. That's our culture. That's humanity. Apart from Christ, they need an intervention and they have one approach. Spend countless hours and resources trying to fix an internal problem with external means. When the problem is actually internal with an internal solution. 
You remember Genesis chapter 3? We're not going to read the text, but you remember Genesis 3? You remember in the garden after the fall? Adam and Eve, Eve was deceived. Adam followed his wife into the, de- into the deception. And what did they do? They disobeyed God. And as a result, they plunged humanity into the curse of sin. And what, 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 what happened? Accountability came. You need to know that on a side note. Accountability comes. If you think you're getting away with sin, you need to know accountability comes. We all answer for our sin. We all answer for our sin. So, of course, God comes walking in the garden and Adam and Eve are hiding. And, and what did Adam and Eve try to do because of their rebellion against God? They started the first man-made religion. It's called fig leaf religion, right? I've talked about this previously, right? They tried to cover their shame. What, what happened because of their sin? Internally, they were broken. And so then externally, they felt the result of what happened inside. You guys get that? Externally, they sinned. Internally, they were broken. So they tried to fix What was inside, the inside problem, was something on the outside. So they put fig leaves over themselves to cover their nakedness because now they knew. They knew that that's the picture. Sin causes shame. Sin causes brokenness. So they knew they had shame. They knew that they were naked. So they tried to fix outside what has to be fixed inside. We're still doing it today. Man-made religion can be summed up as humanity placing their trust in their own righteousness. I'm going to do on the outside something that will help me be right before God. I know internally that something is wrong. I know that I have brokenness and pain. I don't know what the answer is, but I am going to trust in my own ability to be right. It's like the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. You had two of them go to pray to the temple. The Pharisee was a religious person. And he went to the temple to pray and, and he went in and he, he lifted up his eyes and he was loud and boisterous. And he said, oh, God, I come before you and I pray and I'm glad that I'm not like this person. I'm glad I'm not like this person, the adulterer and the liar and the thief. And I'm glad I'm not like this tax collector. I'm glad I'm not like all these crazy, terrible people. I'm glad that I'm holy and I'm good. And that's what he's standing. What was he standing on? His own righteousness. But then the tax collector comes in and what did the tax collector do? He came in and he, he, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven to pray. Why? Because he was well aware of who he was. And he said, oh God, be merciful to me who? A sinner. He recognized that he had no long list of righteous deeds that he could bring before the Lord in prayer and say, believe me, trust I'm trusting in this. I'm believing in this. He had no long list of righteous deeds to bring before the Lord and say, listen to me, God, because of all these good things I've done for you. And that is what man-made religion does. It's just like the Pharisee. It's just like the Pharisee. Isaiah 64, 6 says this. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds, like the Pharisee that's proud of those righteous deeds, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like a filthy rag. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, they take us away. So here's what I want to do as I conclude this, conclude this second point. This is what I want to say. Man-made religion leaves you with one daunting question. Will my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? Will my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? So what I want to illustrate for you, we have an illustration. Will my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? Thank you so much, Mark. You're good there? All right, here we go. All right, so let's illustrate this. 
This is what you have. This is man-made religion right here, right? It's a scale system. It's based upon a scale. So let's just say that this right here represents who we are apart from Christ. We're sinful. We're broken. This is our spiritual condition. It's black, right? So this is who we are apart from Christ. I don't know where these things came from. Not quite sure. Let's just say that these diamonds, you know, these are real diamonds, right? (laughs) So these diamonds represent our our good deeds. I could have a big pile of them. and, And here's what we attempt to do. It's an internal problem. It's something that has to be changed from the inside. But this is what we do. We we just keep trying. I'm gonna be good enough. I'm gonna be a good person. I'm gonna be a good citizen. There's a lot of political people in our culture. I'm just gonna be a good citizen. I'm gonna be a good American. We have a lot of American pride in our world today. There's some people who equate politics and being patriotic with Christianity. You can be the best patriot and love this country with all of your heart, but not be in a relationship with Christ. Being a good patriot doesn't get you to heaven. Doesn't even move that scale. Well, I'm going to be faithful to my spouse and not commit adultery. Well, good. You should do that if you want to have a happy marriage. But it doesn't, doesn't do anything for you. Okay, well, well I'm going to give my money away. I was reading Jeff Bezos divorced his wife because he had an affair with another woman, with, with, a, with another woman and said, I don't want, I'm done with you. And so the woman who he's divorcing, his wife, his ex-wife now, instantly became the wealthiest woman in the world. And so she, I don't know if she's a Christian, so I have no idea. I'm not judging her based, I'm not judging her spiritual condition. And I'm glad that she's going to give away. She made this pact that she's going to give away all her money until her safe is empty, is what she said. She lived her life to give away her billions of dollars. If she's not a Christian, that's not going to get her anywhere with God. So you can just keep whatever you want to say, money, relationships. I could have a whole pile of these and nothing no amount of good deeds, nothing that you do, that we could do on our best day is going to change who we are internally. Re- man-made religion is reduced to a scale. We, and, and here's the question. The daunting question is, is, will my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds in the end? And when I stand before God, is he going to accept me because my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds? And we know that that's not true. That at, at that day, on the day of judgment, the Lord's not looking at your good deeds and whether or not you did more bad, good than bad. What he's looking at is did you place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation? He's looking for the blood. It has the blood of Jesus cleansed your sins. And so humanity needed an intervention. And humanity is self-deceived. And maybe some of you here are self-deceived. You don't see the reality of your problem. And the world only gives one solution. It's man-made religion offers one solution. It's a scale system. Good deeds have to outweigh the bad deeds. But God has a better solution. God's solution is better. And this leads us to our third point. This leads us to John chapter 1. Back to John chapter 1. John 1, 14 says what? The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. This is God's solution to man's problem. Is that, is that He says, I'm going to come. And this is the third point. For God so loved that He gave. For God so loved that he gave. This is the final answer to the question of how can man be right before God. The incarnation is a final solution to delivering humanity from the exhausting work of trying to be righteous on our own. Did you hear that? 
The incarnation is the final solution to delivering humanity, delivering us from the exhausting work of trying to be righteous on our own. God became man, motivated by his great love for us and the glory and for the glory of his name, he became one of us. Philippians 2 demonstrates that for us. This is what it says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says, in your relationships with one another, have this mindset that Christ Jesus has. Who, being in the very nature of God, says that Jesus was God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Some translations say that he emptied himself. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, becoming made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was truly God, and he was truly man. Listen, I want you to hear this closely. At no point when Jesus walked the earth did he ever let go of his deity. There's false teachings that are out there that will tell you that when Jesus walked the earth, he held on to some of his qualities of deity, but he let go of some of them so he can live a life to show us how we can live a life. That's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that at all times he was God. He was man, but he was God, fully God and fully man at all times. He never let go of his deity. John 14, whenever one of the disciples were looking to try to figure out, they're trying to figure out who's the father. They're asking questions about to Christ, about the father. We we just want to see the father. And what did Jesus say in John 14? He said, "Lord, Lord, show us the father, Philip said, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He was fully God and fully man at the same time. So, so why did, why did the, the Pharisees and the scribes crucify Christ? It wasn't because he was just a good man, right? Why would you crucify just a good man? Why, why did they crucify him? It was because he claimed to be God. He never let go of any of his deity. And he claimed that that was true. Look at, look at John 8. It says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, said to Jesus, You're yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Before Abraham was, I am. He's saying to the Pharisees and to the Jews, I existed before Abraham existed before Abraham was I am so what did they do they picked up stones to throw at him but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple so the incarnation is God's answer to the problem of humanity's sinful condition to deliver them from the system of the scales and so here's what I want to say that truth put on flesh perfect holiness put on flesh glory put on flesh compassion put on flesh grace put on flesh, mercy put on flesh, and love put on flesh. The incarnation put on full display the humility and the love of Christ. Why? Because God saw our weaknesses, and he saw our frailty, and he saw our brokenness. And because of his great love, he came and subjected himself to sin and temptation. Yet without sin, he was sinless, but he came and subjected himself to 
temptation. He came and subjected himself to the things that we are subjected to as humans. He came to give his life for us. Our God, our God is a high and he's a holy God. He is other than us. He is all powerful. Our God is uncreated and eternal. And listen, he stooped down in the incarnation to become like us. To come and make this his home. This is who our God is. This is, this is his love for us. This is the power of the incarnation. Our God that is high and holy that can't be approached. Do you remember in Exodus 33? Moses asked God, says, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory, God. Show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. If you see my glory, you're going to die. And so God told Moses, Moses, I'm going to put you in this rock, in this cleft, in this rock. I'm going to hide you. I'm going to, I'm going to pass my, my backside in front of you, and you'll see the backside of my glory. But if you see me in all of my glory, you will die. First Timothy 6, it says this. It says, it says this, it says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who, is a, who, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free of reproach. Listen to this, verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, this is our God, he's high, he's holy, he's sovereign, he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, he's a God that Moses could not see face to face without dying. Listen to this who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and dominion. This is our God, our high, our holy, our sovereign, a God that we cannot in our flesh see his face. He came down amongst us. I want you to feel the weight of the power of the incarnation. A God who is high, who is holy and powerful and sovereign came down. A God that Moses couldn't see face to face. A God that Moses couldn't see and live. He came to us because of our great need. He came and subjected to us. He came and subjected himself to sin and brokenness for us because of our great need, because of our brokenness. Matthew 10 says this about Jesus. And Jesus called to them, to his his disciples, to him and said to them, you know that those who are rulers of the Gentiles, those are rulers of the world, they lord over their followers. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Listen to this. This high, this holy, this majestic, this powerful God. What did he come to do? Right here, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. This is the answer to humanity's problem. Not self-religion. Not, not trying to appease a God by good works. His answer was himself. I'm coming down. I'm coming down to be amongst you. To serve you. To wash your feet. To demonstrate to you. To put on flesh, love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, compassion. That's the God that we serve. The incarnation displays the greatness of God. 
Our God is the eternal God who was born in a stable, not a distant, withdrawn God. Our God is a humble, giving God, not a selfish, grabbing God, taking God. Our God is a purposeful, planning God, not a random, reactionary God. Our God is a God who is far above us and whose ways are not our ways. Not a God we can put in a box and control. Our God is a God who redeems us by his blood. Not a God who leaves us in our sin. Our God is great indeed. Amen. This is the answer to mankind's problem. For God so loved that he gave. And as we conclude here, this last point. God's answer to the problem of the sin of mankind is that he loves us so much that he sent his son. And then now, lastly, through that gift, through Christ, we have received grace upon grace. That's what John 1.16 says. It says in 1.14, the word became flesh. And it says in verse 16, for from his fullness, from the fullness of Christ, we have all received, say it with me, grace upon grace. What does that mean? Grace upon grace. In the original language, it means the grace never ends. It would, should be translated like this. Grace upon grace, 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 upon grace. Are you tired yet? Upon grace. You need some more grace? You need some more grace? You got a situation you're facing? You need some more grace? You have some guilt from some sin that you committed? You need some more grace? Upon grace? Upon grace. It's, it's super abundant grace. He came in his fullness. He came to bring grace Upon grace, this eternal, high, and holy, and sovereign God came to bring eternal grace. Through Christ, we have received grace upon grace, super abundant grace. Mercy, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. You guys understand that? There's a difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't. Deserve. You follow me? Let me illustrate that for you. You're driving in your car. And I know none of you do this. This is hypothetical. But you're driving in your car. And you're going 15 miles per hour over the speed limit. You never do that, right? Well, let's just say perchance one of you was doing that. And the state trooper pulls you over. This is not Lafouche Parish Sheriff's Department. This is not Home of PD, right? This is the state trooper's office. They don't give you grace or mercy, right? Never. That's the state trooper. Pull you over. If you're a state trooper in here, thank you for upholding the law. We appreciate it. <laughs> but this is the difference between mercy and grace. He pulls you over. Police officer stops you for speeding 15 miles per hour over the speed limit. He gives you mercy. You, you, you deserved it, right? You deserved a ticket but because, because you earned it, right? But he says you get mercy today. You are not getting what you deserve. You deserved the ticket because you were going 15 miles per hour over the speed limit. But you get mercy today. And you're like, Whew. I must have looked good today, you know. And my breath must have not stunk today. But then all of a sudden, he reaches into his pocket, reaches into his pocket, he digs all the way in there, and he pulls out one of these. A $100 bill. And he said, today is your lucky day. I'm going to give you $100 for speeding. That's grace. Mercy is you didn't get what you deserve. Grace is you get what you didn't earn. You didn't earn this. You didn't earn mer- grace. But you get it anyway. It's like we, we, we are the eternal speeders, right? We have sinned against God eternally by breaking his law. But he says, here, here's grace. It's free. 
You get to have it. Isn't that amazing? It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But God says, here it is. You can have it. It's yours. It's free. You can't, you can't earn it by stacking up your good deeds. You can't earn it. You broke, the, yeah, you broke the law. You did. We know you did. You're guilty. But here's grace. And I know there's a tension there. Some of you are like, well, that can't, it's too good to be true. That can't be, can't be true. That's grace. If it's too good to be true, if it's too good to be true, then it's grace. If you can't earn it and don't deserve it, then it's grace. This is the grace on which we stand. Romans 5, 1 through 2 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What are you going to stand on? Grace. I'm not saying that we buy God's forgiveness with mercy. That's not the illustration. The illustration is is that God gives us freely something we could not earn. And we didn't deserve it. That's what that means. And that's the grace on which we stand. That's the foundation of our faith that through Christ we are given grace upon grace. Listen to this. This is theologian, scholar Warren Wearsby. He says this. If God dealt with us only according to truth. Remember in John, it says that he came to bring grace and truth. If God dealt with us only according to truth, none of us would survive. But he deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection met all the demands of the law. It's perfect. Now God is free to share fullness of grace with those who trust Christ. Listen to this. This is so good. Grace without truth would be deceitful. Grace without truth would be deceitful. And truth without grace would be condemning. Did you guys get that? It's grace upon grace. We need the truth. And Jesus is going to look at Nicodemus and tell him, you must be born again. He's going to bring the truth. He's going to look at the Samaritan woman in John 4 and say, go get your husband, knowing that she wasn't married. There has to be truth. But truth without grace is condemning. God says, here's the truth. You are a sinner. This is your condition. But here, here's the free gift. It's called grace. It's called grace. The law demands obedience. The law of God demands perfect obedience. And every single one of us fail to meet that standard. We have all sinned and fallen short or missed the mark. The incarnation, listen to this, the incarnation is the clearest sign of God's grace to humanity. I I hope you guys felt, hope you guys felt what I was trying to do here this morning in describing the greatness of our God and his sovereignty and his power. I want you to feel that. He's high, he's holy, he's mighty. But listen to this statement. The incarnation, the fact that that God became one of us, the incarnation is the clearest sign of God's grace to us. The gospel conversation was started by God when he sent his son. And the first word of the conversation was grace. The first word of the gospel conversation from God to man it's grace. It's free. I came to give my life. As we conclude, won't you stand with me? The first word of the conversation was grace. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, we're all, all have sinned and fallen short, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Two most important words in all of Scripture. Because without these two words, we're just left. We're children of wrath. We're spiritually dead, but verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love. What did we read there? What was, our, what was our, our third point? God loves us because of his great love. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ for by grace you have been saved through faith this is not your own doing it's not your own doing it is the gift of God grace is a gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast amen it's good news amen amen so if you are here today if you're here today you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And that right there, Ephesians 2, and the message I just preached has spoken to your heart. And you know you need grace. You know you need forgiveness. And you're tired of this. You're tired of this roller coaster right here. And you want forgiveness. You want peace with God through Jesus Christ. You're ready to give up this system right here. If that's you tonight, if that's you this morning, I want to pray for you. And so if I could get some prayer counselors to come down front. But you, you, we don't have to have all, all of them. How about just the pastors and a couple of the other prayer counselors? Just come down. I'm going to close in prayer. And if the Lord has touched your heart, if the Lord has touched your heart and you want to commit to Christ this morning, you want to believe in him, you want to place your faith in Christ this morning, we, you can do it today. You can do it today. Any one, of these, any one of these men right here can pray with you, can lead you to salvation here this morning. Won't you bow your heads this morning as I pray? And when I dismiss, when I say amen, if that's you, come down and pray to receive Christ. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you, God, that you began this gospel conversation with one word. It's the word grace. It's the word love. You began the conversation by sending your son to die on the cross for us, for taking our place. And I thank you, God, that through Christ we are free. We are free from the exhausting system of man-made religion of trying to get enough good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds. We thank you that through faith in Christ, we can be made brand new. God, I pray that if there are those here today, God, that as we dismiss in prayer, I pray, Lord, that they would come and pray and receive Christ today. Lord, bless your people today. Strengthen them today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.